Let's get under the word, shall we? Matthew chapter 1. I want to welcome you here as well as those who are in our upstairs live streaming venue, other locations. Let's have our Bibles ready. It's the word that does the work, right, church? So no matter our location, let's ask the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and change our lives. I'm confident this morning he'll do exactly that as we look at a portion of Scripture in the Christmas narrative, just a few verses, Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Let me set the framework for what I think you'll experience this morning as we delve into God's Word. Uh, I'm going to venture into some areas where I'm not familiar uh, completely. I want to thank the Lord for my wife, who is an expert in math. I ran this by her, so I feel pretty safe at this point. Uh, she cautioned me, though, just be careful because math's not your proficiency. And to that, I would say amen. But I want you to think back or think about when you watched perhaps a first grader, um, maybe your own experience, when an equation became solvable. In other words, like maybe it was a word problem, or maybe it was something in elementary math, and it was your first experience. I watched this with one of our grandsons this past week. I just, uh, some word problems he was just first experiencing, and the joy on his face when he realized, oh, there is an answer to the blank. Like, it's not a story with missing information if I solve it, and there's a way to solve it. And so, I want you to think about that in your life, maybe when you've watched your children, the moment when suddenly an equation has an answer. And I know it's somewhat trivial to think about it in mathematical terms in one way, but just that first moment when you realize, oh, I, I, can, I can solve this problem. Like there's an answer to it. So I want you to think about that as we approach our text, because what we're going to see in Matthew 1 is really an equation of sorts that is solved by God. Matthew lays this out for us. It's Matthew's salvation equation. And so I want to look at this with you. Uh, after we look at this text and talk about it some, I want to just give you a heads up. We will have a very intentional response time this morning. So will you pray with me to that end, even while we're exploring God's Word and, and sensing the Holy Spirit's work among us? Pray to the end that God will just move in our hearts. The Holy Spirit will breathe upon our gatherings. And he'll move in a way that will respond well to Matthew's salvation equation. To look at this in the best way possible, let's go to our lab. You have your journal, your Bible. Feel free to mark in it, look at it. I want to walk you through this text. We'll read it and then come back and analyze it in three parts. Here's what Matthew would write to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about the birth of Christ. That's the point of these three verses. He says in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son 
And you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Notice, first of all, if you would, one of the ways we can tell what the narrative is about generally is by bookend words. I'd encourage you as you study your Bible to look for repeated words, especially at the beginning or end of paragraphs. Here you see the word birth. Here you see the word birth. So Matthew's point here, really his end game, is just to give us an overview of Christ's birth, essentially how it came about. He's, he's giving a narrative um, aspect of how Christ's birth occurred. Some translations say it came about in this way or it took place in this manner. And we're gonna see three things. First of all, notice in the first two verses, I'm just gonna kind of bracket them like this. You may wanna do the same thing. That it happened in a human way. Stay with me, I'll show what I mean. I, I wanna focus on three words. She was pregnant. That's a very human condition. We'll say it's a very female condition. It's what women experience when they're carrying a child. You may say, well, Todd, it, it says the Holy Spirit there as well. You're right, we see that part of the story now, but at the time this was written, especially these two verses, Joseph was not aware, so he's responding as well in a very human way. Do you see that? He's thinking about divorcing her in a secret kind of a way so she's not disgraced. He's thinking another man's in the picture. So a lot of these first two verses, Matthew's laying out the human angle. Like, hey, there's a pregnant woman. You could see it. Joseph didn't know it. He's thinking, what are my options? It's very human. So write these words in. Just write human. And then maybe the letters ND, meaning this, that Christ was naturally delivered through human processes of birth. That's how Christ came to us. However, the next verse shows us something interesting, that while it was naturally delivered, we'll bracket this part off and show that Christ was supernaturally, or you could say spiritually conceived. Because in a dream, Joseph was told, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So she was humanly pregnant, but was conceived divinely. So write the word divine in here somewhere. And you can just put in words like spiritually conceived, spiritually referring to the Holy Spirit. You could put supernaturally conceived, either one of those works. We're just showing something here that Within Mary's womb is one baby that is fully human and will be delivered naturally and yet is divinely conceived, so is as well fully divine. This is inside Mary's womb. The result of that is perhaps the most beautiful verse in this entire narrative, is that this son that she's going to give birth to the angel said to Joseph, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Just bracket that verse off. Isn't that beautiful? The, the, the clear indication that this one who is human and divine is now our Savior. He will save his people from their sins. So the human and the divine come together to give us a Savior. And out beside Savior, can you just put these two letters, SS, 
It stands for sovereignly sacrificed. And here's what I want to share with you that perhaps we unintentionally overlook. Joseph as a Jew would have heard the angel say, he will save his people from their sins. And you know the end of the story and you know the the four implications of what Jesus did for us. So you don't hear that in a Jewish way. You hear that in an American post, um, you know, Bethlehem way. But Joseph was hearing this in a Jewish way. And so his mind, I believe, personally begins to think back to, well, how, how do our people, how did our people experience atonement, rescue saving from our sins. We were looking towards Messiah and we always remembered that. We anticipated that we would sacrifice in light of that. It was the shedding of blood. It was the sacrifice of an animal annually, often daily. Like this involved a sacrifice. I think Joseph's mind went there. I think as a Jew, hearing this phrase, he will save his people from their sins. His mind remembered, oh, That involves a sacrifice and the shedding of blood. I think, personally, this was a heavy moment for the soon-to-be adoptive father of Jesus. Now, I know you don't hear it that way, neither do I, because we know how it ends, we know the full story, we celebrate Christmas, but if you're in his shoes at that moment, as a Jew, realizing that, okay, there's not another man in the picture, It's the Holy Spirit conceiving a savior. And I know what that means. That's just a, a, a startling moment in the text when Joseph realizes the one that Mary's giving birth to will be the redeeming sacrificial atonement for our sins. So let's think about this in an equational form. That was our goal, right? I wanted you to think about your moment when you either see your grandkid or your child or maybe your own experience when suddenly you realize, oh yeah, dilemmas have solutions. Equations can be solved. Watch this. If our problem, if our, if our dilemma, if our word problem, can we call it that, is that we have sins that we need saved from, guess what? God has moved on our behalf. He has given Jesus human plus divine equals a savior. Hallelujah, church. Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the sacrificial atonement for the sins of all who believe. And that's how we are rescued and saved. And I would add, it is the only way we are rescued and saved. It is through Jesus Christ, the divine human son of God. Now I'll say more about these two things next week in our message aimed precisely at the incarnation because this is what this is referring to. We'll leave that for next week. Can we just at this moment rejoice that the equation is solved, amen? God has moved on our behalf and sent Jesus who was fully God, and fully man to do what only Jesus could do, save us from our sins. Now, I want to make sure you understand something about this equation. Every single aspect is necessary. Matthew's salvation equation here does not have expendable parts. If Jesus is not human, 
then he's not able to be our substitute. He has to offer something as our high priest, is what he's called in the New Testament, as our substitute, as the one dying in our place and living the life of perfection in our place. So he actually has to have a body of flesh and bones. He has to um, incarnate, and so he does. And without him being human, he can't be our substitute. But if he's not divine, he can't be sufficient. He's saying this word earlier when we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. He's saying about the sufficiency of the incarnate one. And the only way that Jesus as the fully human one is sufficient to take our place if he is, if is he's fully divine. And he is, he's fully God. He lived and fulfilled the law perfectly. He pleased God perfectly. He filled all of the wrath of God against sin perfectly. Jesus does what you can't do because you are tainted. I'm tainted. We are fundamentally stained, but Jesus is without sin and yet in every way knows what it's like to be human. And so because he is both of these perfectly, fully man and fully God, he is fully our salvation. Amen, church? He is the one and only who can do what all of us need done, saved from our sins. I'm so thankful that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Aren't you, church? He's the rock of our salvation. He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. So could you, as you've been so far cranially kind of processing this and finding your heart rejoicing and getting larger and wanting to explode, can we just, with our hands, praise the Lord for being the captain of our salvation and verbally and visibly thank him for his wonderful grace and mercy? Amen. In light of this truth, it's, it's packed with doctrine, but it's in narrative form, so it's just kind of walking through the first event or so of the Christmas chronology. In light of that, and in light of what we have seen about Christ our Savior, let's put this in a simple sentence, can we? Just kind of unpack this, form it into one statement. We can kind of put in our pocket and take home. We're calling it this month a take-home treasure. Normally we call it a take-home truth. But this month, during Advent, we're going to just kind of focus in on one word each week. Of course, it's peace congregationally and through your journals and in some of your Advent readings. For our message, we're looking at this treasure of salvation, of course. And Christ is the peace that God gives us. And our salvation obviously brings us peace. So you think about this take-home treasure of salvation. Here's a sentence that I think encapsulates this text well. Gives us some doctrine in, a, in kind of an easily graspable fashion, that Jesus is uniquely and exclusively able to save because Jesus is uniquely and exclusively both God and man. That's in a nutshell, Matthew 1, 18 through 21. That's the narrative we've seen. This is what Joseph was told by the angels, what Mary experienced, that Jesus was naturally delivered, fully human, but supernaturally, spiritually conceived, fully divine, and that's why he can save his people from their sins. Because he is both. So can you say this with me? Just cement this further in our heads and our hearts? Together, church. Jesus is uniquely and exclusively able to save 
Because Jesus is uniquely and exclusively both God and man. No one else qualifies in this way. So only Jesus can save. And here's what I think is so ironic about this time of year. This type of message that includes such incredible exclusivity is normally pushed against by our culture and society. In fact, I would maintain that we're no longer in a post-Christian culture. We're in an anti-Christian culture. Pluralism, syncretism is the call of the day. And if you have any type of exclusivity in your message or in your belief system, you're not just like tolerated. You're, you're almost uh, trying to be dismantled. That's just kind of comes to the territory. It's okay. What I find ironic is that there are about 30 days each year in which people actually sing this truth. It's called Christmas. So those who would stand against you and push against you and, you know, make you feel like you're just really a exclusivist, you're narrow-minded, um, you discriminate, all these words, at least for most of December, they're like singing the very same thing. And I don't know if they know it or not, so we'll just give them the benefit of the doubt. It's almost an unwitting agreement. Yeah, there's, there's one who came and he's the king and he's the only one who can save us. We say that, we sing that during December. Isn't that odd to you? It's kind of ironic, almost humorous. Maybe when you hear carols on your radio, if some of you still listen to that, uh, you'll laugh tomorrow. Maybe you'll play some songs at home and it'll be by some famous Hollywood star who made a Christmas album because the royalties are great. Every year you get a check, right? They have no clue who Christ is or what he has done and yet they're singing about him as king as the God child. Can, can I just walk you through a few carols that do this? We sang some this morning. Maybe you want to join in with me. I'll just give you a few lines. Hark the herald angels sing. Watch this. Glory to the newborn. I think that's interesting that we say king. You know, you don't have a culture or a society with two kings. That's uh, impossible. If there's a king, and some else will be king, you got to take the first king out, right? And then there's one another king. But we love Christmas because the newborn king is here. The, um, these phrases and words are, are, are quite intriguing to me. Here's some more for you. Um, Hark the herald angels sing. Here's one verse. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hell incarnate deity. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? God is among us. The rest of that says this. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Isn't that interesting? Here's one we don't sing a lot. It's got a great line in it though. God rest you merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Is that kind of a, you know, minor kind of folkish sound to it a little bit, you know? Remember Christ our Savior. Matthew 1 was born on Christmas Day. Watch this. To save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Thank you, Isaiah. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. That means good news. Like, man, that's a great gospel song. Amen. You'll hear it played at Kohl's or the restaurant. 
Now, I, I'm just glad the gospel's getting out. I don't know how the Lord does all that. His providence and sovereignty is magnificent. Amen? We can have that talk later about how it's getting out. I'm just glad that somewhere for 30 days, there's some kind of cultural agreement. Yeah, God has come to us in Jesus, and that's the only way. He's the only king. My favorite one is, O little town of Bethlehem. Listen to these words. I think it's the second or third verse. O holy child of Bethlehem. Now I forget how the next part goes, but here's the part I like. Um, I think it says, descend on us today. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Now that's a clear call for like, there's only one who can purge us and redeem us and cleanse us. And it's this child who was born in Bethlehem. It's the God-man. Amen? So I, I bring that to your attention, not to necessarily have a second singing portion, but for you to realize that when you leave and tomorrow as you're about your day with workmates and friends and family members, and perhaps Christmas music's playing in the background somewhere, it may be an open door to have a conversation with someone who is actually an unbeliever and quite pluralistic, but is singing songs that actually declare the exclusivity and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it may be an opportunity if you just kind of walk through that door, cross that threshold, and have an initial or maybe further conversation about, well, is, do you believe that? And just begin that moment of witnessing or sharing that could change someone's life. They may move from being pluralistic, synchronistic, to being truly repentant and then believing in Christ as the only way. And they may experience what Matthew here says happens when one believes that Jesus Christ, the one who is fully human and fully divine, is the only way to be saved. He will save them from their sins. This is what Paul told Timothy, by the way, in clear-cut language. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This simple truth that is kind of explaining the treasure of salvation, how it comes through one God-man. Here's how Paul worded it. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. So in your mind, I hope what's happening is a canyon is kind of developing. There's this image of of two sides. Here's God, here's mankind. And Paul is echoing what Matthew says, that there's one mediator. There's one who is fully God and fully man who can bridge this gap, this impossible canyon, this eternal dilemma. Who is that? How is the equation solved? What goes in the blank? Jesus the God-man who gave himself a ransom for all and is a testimony at the proper time. There is only one way to be saved from our sins and his name is Jesus Christ, Amen. the God-man. He bridges the canyon, crosses the divide. He stands in for you so that you can be rightly related to and reconciled to God. And he's the only one who can because he's the only one who is both God and man. It's historically proven in Matthew 1, doctrinally proclaimed in 1 Timothy. And I just want to 
make sure this morning during this Christmas season, we don't miss the obvious. Jesus Christ is fully sufficient as your substitute to save you from your sins. That's not a new message. It's one we consistently proclaim from here. It's one that's been trumpeted throughout the Bible. So my prayer is right now, as you're thinking about responding, if you are a believer, if you've already trusted Christ, your heart is just you know, getting larger and larger, fuller and fuller. Your soul is being stirred more deeply as you think about the treasure of salvation that Jesus is to us. God on your behalf through Christ reconciling you to himself. Yes, this is the message that's been trumpeted from cover to cover. I think back to Genesis chapter 3, the first mention of the gospel. You know, that's, that's the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible, Adam and Eve. And when God moves in to atone for their sin and to judge their sin, in his judgment upon the serpent, hear these intriguing words. He says to the serpent, there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring, speaking of Eve, the woman. And then the next word is the word he. He will strike your head. The offspring of the woman is a reference to Jesus Christ and his victory over Satan. Amen, church? All the way back in Genesis 3, the very first mention of the gospel, God points to Jesus and says, he will strike the serpent's head, gain victory. He'll redeem God's people. He will save us from our sins. The Old Testament continues, Israel's languishing in exile. They're in punishment for their sins. God, through Isaiah, writes, they behold, to you a, a son will be given, a child will be born. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. You know who God is pointing to in those prophecies about Israel's deliverance? He's pointing to his son, Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the one who will save us from our sins. Well, Jesus Christ did come historically fulfilling all prophecy. When he came, he was crystal clear about his claim, about what God had said about him as father and what he said about himself. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what may be the most startling words in the whole Bible, no one comes to the father except through me. You can't be more plain than that. He also said other times he was the door, meaning the only entrance into the fold is through Jesus. He was the light of life, meaning you're not seeing until you see Jesus. He was the bread of life. That means you've not eaten until you've had Jesus. So many of his metaphors and analogies were very exclusive in their claim. Peter, upon Christ's ascension, was the first preacher to the church in Jerusalem. Here's what he said in Acts 4. It mirrors the very same type of plain speech that Jesus had. He said, all those who were gathered, 
There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved. I think it may be Peter's hearkening back to Matthew 1 when the angel said to Joseph, you will name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And Peter's saying, there's not another name that'll do that for you. Only the name and person of Jesus. God radically saves Paul on the way to Damascus. Paul plants churches and to the churches in the region of Galatia, he writes this about Jesus. He says that God sent forth his son at the completion of time or the fullness of time, born of a woman and born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He's here both humanity and divinity terms. Here's one born under the law of flesh, and yet he's able to redeem. So Paul makes a clear case to those churches. There's only one person who can redeem you. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. And John would say to us in Revelation 7, what we'll hear forever in eternity. Salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb. John knows who owns the act of redemption. He knows who owns the rescue of the lost. It's the one and only Jesus. Amen, church. This is what the angel told Joseph was conceived in Mary's womb. Naturally delivered, divinely conceived, and because both are true, our eternal dilemma is solved. Jesus is the only Savior who saves us from our sins. And my heart rejoices. Doesn't yours? And as I read through this and thought about it, my mind went back to that day when I was just about 13, almost 14. It was 1978. This is what God revealed to me in those moments of conviction that Jesus was the only way this redheaded teenager could be saved. I was in a great home with a super mom and dad, very Christian and a fantastic church. I was Mr. Youth Group, Mr. Junior High Youth Group guy. I mean, everything was like picture perfect in a lot of ways. Just like it, I, wasn't, I didn't have some like drug habit, didn't have some sexual addiction. I didn't have some of these outwardly visible. I was a kid. I, so I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. I've got a stack of good things in my corner. I got a good name. But in that moment, in a place called Phillips Chapel, just before I was turning 14, God's Spirit so convicted me that none of those things could be trusted to make me right with God. I remember being compelled in an irresistible way to trust Christ. I could not say no. In our culture, of course, they would say, if you want to trust Christ, come to the front. I just walked right out of that third row, walked right down front. I didn't care who was watching. I didn't even know if people were watching. For all I knew, it was one person in front of God. Man, I need to be saved. And God turned me from trusting all of these good things to trusting the only thing that saves, Jesus. You could have the opposite story. You could have a story where your life is full of a lot of bad things and you're thinking they're keeping you from Jesus. But guess what? Jesus overpowers both good and bad. He delivers from our self-righteousness and our wickedness. Amen, church? 
And no matter where you are this morning, if you're realizing for the first time, I've been trusting all the wrong things. This morning, I want to only trust Jesus. This is repentance and faith. Repentance is letting go of trusting all the wrong things. Faith is clinging to the only thing that you can trust to save you, Jesus. And the Bible says that when one is repentant and then trusts Jesus, repentance and faith, God saves. Would today be your day of salvation? I'm praying that's exactly what occurs both in this room, upstairs, other locations, to the message of God's word that there has been one born who's fully God and fully man. His name is Jesus, and he saves his people from their sins.